Hello and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey everyone, another amazing show for you today. I have with me former CCM artist Jennifer Knapp. Hey there. Good to be with you, Eric. She is with us here today. Welcome, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you so much. A gloomy day when I'm hanging out here in Nashville, but you know, your face on my screen is definitely lightening things up. <laughs> oh, well, that's sweet and not true, but nevertheless, here we go. <laughs> I think most people uh, will remember you from um, like the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I know I was in college when I first heard your music um, and basically pretty much anyone who considered themselves a musician within the... Uh, uh, Christian like rock bands and stuff like that knew and appreciated your work um, and uh, guitar playing, which we I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit uh, here. So maybe you can just like let us know like what got what prompted you into getting in the industry. Like provide some context for us. Yeah, you know I always I always kind of like have to laugh a little bit because I never really aspired to be doing what I'm doing right now. I mean, I definitely grew up as a musician in high school and planned on being uh, in the classical music world, actually, as I went to college. But uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I took any interest in Christianity at all, had no idea about the machinations of Christian culture. Um, yeah. had no idea about the existence of Christian music. I mean, obviously I had a, had a concept that people talked about their faith through art, you know, um, you know, anywhere, you know, from Mozart to, I think I had a small awareness of like Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, but the <laughs> idea that there was this whole industry around it was beyond me. And it wasn't until after I had been, uh, basically what I like to say jokingly is that I drank the Kool-Aid um, I became, you know, I was, um, it wasn't until I was, a uh, had a, you know, started participating with my faith community there at college. I had, uh, drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. My evangelical Christians had successfully witnessed to me. And, uh, I started to kind of understand what the Christian cultural bubble was to a degree. I mean, they started encouraging me to, you know, not necessarily, they basically started to kind of encourage me to stop listening to quote unquote secular music and informing me of this whole other world of music that existed in CCM. And, uh, and also through my discipleship were encouraging me to, instead of you know, play cover songs like I was doing of, you know, my mainstream artists, but to start you know, writing music for my faith. So yeah, it was really interesting. I didn't, you know, I, I gotta be honest, like when I, a lot of the music that I listened to in CCM at the time, there was like a ton of Twyla Paris, you know, Point of Grace, kind of just really feminine female mu female artists. There weren't a lot of artists that I could relate to coming from where I was listening. You know, there were no Tracy Chapman's or Indigo Girls or, uh, you know, Suzanne Vega's or Natalie Merchant's. They're just, that didn't exist. It was always kind of like these ladies in dresses singing praise and worship music. Sandy Patty was hu still huge at the time. And that just totally missed me. I, I just didn't get it. And, uh, you know, I, I had to be in it. I had to, I had to really go searching for some music that I found um, I don't want to be insulting, but I, I, I want to say palatable, <laughs> but I mean, you know, when you're a young kid, you're really looking for things that grab your imagination that really, you know, make you feel cool and, and embolden your sense of self. And it took like, uh, running into artists like Dakota Motor Company, uh, Sixpence None the Richer were indie artists at the time, uh, tons of like dude bands. So like, Five Iron Frenzy and anything just about like a lot of West Coast artists. Um, Michael Knott was one of them. And you you really had to kind of know some people to find those records. They were obscure. So that made them a little bit more cool as well. Um, but to, you know, this idea that I would ever be in that world and actually participating was still well beyond me. I, I just didn't imagine because like nobody like me existed. So I, I don't yeah. think I really kind of thought about and, in, you know, I don't think I saw any invitation to go participate it. I, I started playing, you know, my guitar very poorly in uh, praise and worship groups across my college campus and started writing a few songs. And it wasn't, 
I mean, it, I know it sounds like a, a really fast journey because by the time I became a Christian and two years later, I was pretty much touring regularly and and kind of sifting through what I was going to do with my recording options uh, with record labels and things like that. It was really fast, but um, the, it was basically just my friends encouraging me to, to keep playing the songs that I was writing about what I was experiencing. And a lot of those songs that I wrote at the time ended up on a very well-known and loved record called Kansas, which was my first record. So yeah, it was kind of a really fast and quick thing that I, I didn't even, I, and I think even at, by the time that I had signed, I still didn't really have an appreciation for what, how big and actually, you know, how how big and how potent the contemporary Christian music industry actually was. Yeah. Wow. So did you, uh, did you send like demos out? Uh, how, how were you discovered? Uh, yeah, you know, I was actually, one of the first things that I did in college, uh, was I was in this, uh, contemporary, well, this, this little rock band called Captured <laughs> and there were about like a dozen of us, I think like at one point, you know, it was just everybody who was, not necessarily we were trying to do other things besides just be a worship band so we were writing some rock music and stuff at the time and uh there i met a gentleman by the name of byron funk and he was the bassist in the band and he had actually had time in his younger years of wanting to be in a, a contemporary Christian rock band. So he knew everything about everything. Like he had aspired to do this. He knew, you know, how to book shows. He knew, uh, and he had done some touring when he was younger and he was really encouraging me. So eventually that's all to say is that he eventually took it, uh, to be an, a mentor and an encourager to me and started booking me for solo shows and started sending out. We started, like, I didn't even aspire to record, you know, we were, we recorded some early demos in uh, Southeast Kansas, which is where I grew up and a little, e a little cassettes, you know, at the time, like they yeah. had the same songs on the front, you know, on the first five songs on one side and the same five songs on the second side. And we recorded it on a reel to reel in a farmhouse, you know, super fun stuff. And it felt really exciting to me to do that. And then later on, I would do another indie CD called Wishing Well. And I think Goatee Re Records released portions of that. But um, yeah, it was really his encouragement because he knew this world existed and he saw potential for me to do that, even though I didn't kind of see that same thing and so he encouraged me to do that he was he was actually calling matt uh booking agents and record company people and i think he was even sending things out to uh what was it uh was it ccm magazine was that yeah. it was that the title of the magazine at the time yeah I think so. so in yeah and he he even got me a write-up in that before i'd even gotten signed so it's somewhere in the archives there's like two or three paragraphs of this kid who's <laughs> in kansas you know kicking some serious butt and uh be on the lookout for it. that was probably a couple of years before i got signed so you know i think it was a vision really about a lot of other people within christian culture who kind of understood at least a little bit of of the potential that I had to be able to participate in that conversation. They understood the conversation that I was having locally and they, they really were encouraging me to do that at a broader scale. So, um, and even all the way up to the point of, you know, getting to Nashville and, you know, seeing the GMA week, which is the big week long extravaganza that they used to have in the build up to the Dove Awards. So there'd be, you know, record labels doing showcases all over the place and anybody was every everybody was in and around Nashville playing songs. And I came in to see that and I was just like, oh my goodness, like this is this is bigger than I thought. And there were I th I think the thing that made it compelling to me was actually the the youth or the young people that were my age and people around you know, my peers like Johnny Q Public. Um, out of Eden on on Goatee Records, all they had a really young artist roster, and that was appealing to me at the time. And and I think in ways, particularly because of independent Christian labels at the time, were signing you know not thirty year old praise and worship people. They were they were people they were young people like me, kind of figuring out what their faith meant and talking openly about what that experience was like and putting that into their art. And I think the result of that was that we got you know a really amazing series of records and artists from the early night, you know, from the mid nineties into the early two thousands that were indicative of a generation that's now going through deconstruction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a rise of hip hop as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think kudos to those smaller record labels, um, like goatee 
and I, I think of rex records as well or even tooth and nail and uh gosh what were what were the oc supertones what record label were they on uh, bep B, brandon ebel records i think what brandon ebel was the the president of that record label i mean it, it took a lot of people kind of not in the major machine to give an, an opening to all of these other styles and all of these other experiences of christianity that didn't you know i i don't think we see that a lot today it's it's kind of sad that we don't see that diversity and we it, we've had problems because of it yeah so um uh, i've been in a lot of uh you know youth groups i used to be a youth pastor so i've, I've been um in a lot of uh a context where uh you know i might be in a, a youth building or facility and it never fails that um it you know at least back in the day um, there were Jennifer Knapp posters right along Audio Adrenaline <laughs> and all these other big groups. What was it like for you to be a um, sort of like a, a f the face of of that one of the faces of that industry? Like what, what sort of pressures did you feel? Stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I mean, I, I, I think it's important to kind of say that I, I, I don't feel like I, I really was in CCM that long. Right. I did three records. I would, I basically got signed, I think in around 97, 98, and then I was gone by 2002. So that's, you know, that's not a real long time. Like I, most people wouldn't necessarily call that a career, but maybe more of a cameo, but I mean, it was pretty intense. I mean, from the time that my record released to the time, you know, within, I, I think by the end of the cycle of that first record, I mean, there was definitely pressure to get those records out. So I felt pressure definitely on the industry side of it and in terms of creating um, I felt a little bit of pressure out on the road in terms of starting to realize the gravity of, of how intensely scrutinized you are as an artist in that environment. And I think that's even more particular for women um, because of this, you know, this threat, I suppose, that we present as being, you know, people who potentially destroy the careers of men. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think is one way to put that. And then, you know, and then depending on where you go, you know, the, the latitude of which women have been given in certain environments to speak in church. And, you know, inherently as a musician with a guitar, you have a microphone. So you're a woman who's going to say things. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I think the concept of, of, you know, I was really comfortable among my peers. And I, I think I particularly appreciated youth groups as well, because, you know, I, I don't think we tend to scrutinize people quite that, rigidly you know we're not I, I think when we're younger we're not necessarily as concerned with the authoritarian kind of approach to you know maintaining the boundaries of our faith and defining what those boundaries should be we're we're more kind of looking outward and, and trying to connect with other people and learn about who we are and learn about what i think our faith is if we're you know if we're so inclined but to be able to kind of feel that pressure increase i think you know by the by the end of my career the idea that yeah like i i do have a poster in every youth group um wall and that's just so it's so it's a bizarre feeling to be in some place that you've never been you know yeah. and to have people talk about you and anticipate what you're going to do next or to have conversations centered around who you are and and i think in particular i think when we talk about christian culture and particularly with youth groups and art uh, definitely in the 90s, I felt I, I definitely started to realize after I'd gotten into the industry for a couple of years that the mechanism of art was a way that adults definitely used to be able to draw in youth into conversations to feel culturally relevant. And I don't think that's necessarily an insidious or a poor practice, but the idea was kind of you know well here's a woman who, like and I, I we were presented that way you know here's a woman who is singing about her faith this is who you should aspire to be like um and telling youth groups that right and and mm -hmm. and doing things like like there were these weird extracurricular things that i found opportunities to do like writing forwards to uh bible translations so there you know there would be maybe a marketing campaign to bibles specifically printed it with pink covers and yeah. with commentaries from women like particularly 
you know, targeted toward girls or to boys and things yeah. like that. So like these ideas that, you know, we are marketing all of these ideas and there's this bit other industries, like all the p things that we publish, all the things that we go through. And it becomes really important to have basis for that. And the artists were used to do that. And I think naively, you know, you think, oh, yeah, here's an opportunity for, you know, kids to say that they like what I'm playing. But you don't realize in the long run, I think this is kind of what led to me walking. One of the things that led me to walking away from it is this idea that I was some kind of exemplar. And when those people who are in those gatekeeper gatekeeping positions begin to choose you an exemplar, they actually expect you to believe and buy into what they hope you will represent. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead quite quickly here, but by 2002, I became quite uncomfortable with the idea that in say a youth group setting and true love weights campaigns were going on and sexual purity was definitely being targeted at young women. The idea that I would want to even be represented in that way, or that it would be assumed by most people behind the scenes that I would want that as well, because I was a Christian, this idea of, you know, maximizing this, this, I, you know, deifying this, this idea of like a true love, you know, true love weights and, and for girls to be virgins when they got married was such a, had like, I knew from my own experience how shameful and how damaging that can be. And I didn't want any part of it. And the idea that I would be asked and expected to represent that even without, like, even when I just went out and played a show, you know, not even signing onto a true love weight, true love weights campaign, but the, the way that kind of overlaps and assumes that when you walk out on stage and you're singing about your faith inside of the Christian music industry, that you are endorsing all of the things that come with it and, and usually on the most conservative lines. So that, you know, on one hand, it was, it was, it was, it was a really hard thing to realize that I was actually connecting with a lot of my peer group and a little bit younger and how meaningful that was. And I think it stood the test of time, but also the exchange of that professionally and in terms of conservatism, that meant that in order to participate, you had to some way endorse that in order to be a given a voice. It was, it was yeah. a very experience for sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's interesting because, uh, I know, I remember that, uh, for the Jennifer Knapp was a big deal for a while. And then all of a sudden she went AWOL. Um, uh, I have a little, well, yeah, I have a little story about that. Um, I remember back around probably 2010 or so, um, we, uh, at the church I was at, we uh, had got this notice somehow. I don't know, uh, if someone knew, knew like your agent or something at the time, but, uh, we were hosting concerts. Our church was at that time, usually like indie stuff and stuff like that. But my pastor came to me and said, look, we got a chance to possibly get Jennifer Knapp. Do you think we should? And then um, I was like, well, why not? Of course, it's Jennifer Knapp. And then uh, he was like, well, what about the um, the controversy? And I said, what controversy? <laughs> and he said, well, you didn't hear that she came out recently. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But that doesn't have anything to do with our music, does it? Or her music and she still plays and stuff, right? And uh, so, but he was really concerned. We ended up not getting you, unfortunately, but he was uh, really concerned about, you know, uh, how churches in the area would uh, react to having someone who had recently come out still performing Christian music. Um, and he was, you know, a little unsure about that. I'm, I'm curious what that, did you get similar reactions in the, within the Christian subculture? Yeah, uh, uh, so many different kinds of reactions. But I mean, yeah, I, I did spend seven years outside of the industry. Um, like I said, I quit in 2002. And I got to say, I really, when I packed up my guitars at that time, I had absolute firewall, I think, and and had no intention of ever playing in a church again. Um, and it, it it took me a long time to like, you know, it took me close to seven years to even pick up my guitars again. It just, it hurts wow. so much to kind of go through that experience and, and that, you know, that I, I, and I realized like to pick up my guitars again, I'd, I was going to in some way have to confront publicly what my relationship was going to be with faith and yeah. with the church knowing that, and also, you know, there was no guarantee that I was going to get a gig to play again, ever again. So, 
you know, I, I think the, the, the anecdote that you're sharing is, is kind of indicative to some of the things that happened as soon as people, as soon as I got back to Nashville, it was this really weird kind of thing that I didn't even anticipate that anyone would even miss me at all. Like, and they wouldn't even notice that I showed back up in town. And then when word got out that I was back and recording again, I did get a lot of churches asking me to come and play. And that was, you know, before I came out and then I was like, Oh, uh, I better, you know, it made me realize that, you know, coming out was going to definitely be a necessity because I did have an understanding that this would be controversial and I didn't want to put, um, you know, I even had people want, you know, even like books, uh, bookstores, like Lifeway Christian bookstores and things like that. Like, uh, people were assuming that I was just going to come back and, and do Christian music and they didn't know yet that I wasn't intending to do that. And they didn't know yet that I was gay. And so I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to be doing Christian music and I'm gay. Let's see if we can all together have a conversation about how these two are not necessarily linked, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, I, I think that's an important distinction. Had I wanted to actually genuinely come back and do Christian music, I would have done that, I think, you know, and then we would have had a conversation about it. Um, and, but when churches like yours started calling and genuine, and even having heard about that information saying, we, we really don't, have a dog in this fight, you know, we don't really, that's not a distinction that, that a lot of churches wanted to make. Um, but I still wasn't ready. And in fact, if you'd, if you'd have called and asked in probably that first year or so after I had released, um, the letting go record in 2010 and did all the coming out stuff, I pro I was still pretty edgy. I mean, I didn't trust faith communities yet. Um, I was, you know, I'd been involved in churches where I'd been, you know, back in my CCM days, I'd been invited to churches where I've gone and played and then get there and they want me to be something different. And they, they're inviting me, they're hoping to change me while I'm there, you know? <laughs> and so that is not a situation that I ever wanted to be in. And I, I just did not, you know, I, I didn't even want to entertain. I didn't even know how I felt publicly and what conversation I was going to have publicly at that time about my faith. Um, and whether or not I was even comfortable at all at being associated publicly with Christianity. I just, I didn't know. And so at churches that, that gave me invitations, which were wonderful, if you think about it, really extraordinarily wonderful invitations at the time in the middle of this incredible hurricane of just vilification of everything that I'd ever done were, you know, these beams of light and people saying, listen, we are fellow Christians, people of faith, and we love what you've done. And we're here to support you and please come and play at our churches. And I couldn't, it took me a long time to be able to do that. I, I, I mean, I say it, it felt like a long time, it was probably within a year or so I'd kind of tried to figure out what I was doing, but because I think in those invitations, I I think there were early signs that I could kind of see, oh, wow, like, this is going to be significant. You know, I think particularly in talking to LGBTQ people inside of faith communities, I don't know anybody who's gone through this experience that doesn't feel just completely alone. Even though hundreds of us, thousands of us have gone through this experience, it's still ultimately your experience to travel. Yeah. And it, it makes it very difficult to, to feel like this isn't like this, the, the difficulty that our church communities do have with LGBTQ inclusion. It's very difficult for that to not feel like it's targeted against you personally when you personally are coming out at the time. So, it, you know, when I, when I kind of started to step back and, you know, I would go out and play shows and I would have like young kids, you know, not young kids, but even full grown adults coming up to me and going, listen, I've heard that you might be gay. If you can come out, please do. I mean, yeah. it's important for me to see somebody else like me in the world. I really desperately need to see somebody else like me in the world. I'd had pastors come up to me and say, listen, if you can come play in our church, I promise you with every ounce of my being it's so important for you to come and play. If you can play, we will protect you. Like we will care for you in this place. You can say anything that you want. You can do anything that we want. We're just hoping that you will just play and the like, bare minimum. And it, it took a lot of those kinds of conversations for me to just really inhabit and get over my own pain and my own hurt in that and go, listen, this is, this is actually bigger than me. And it's really important for me to be able to get over that to be able to see what, you know, I, I think in a weird way of all the, all the things that I did in my first CCM career, 
I never really, I was never really comfort, comfortable with this idea that, you know, Christian artists were all uniformly, Christ, you know, ministers of music. I, I never felt like that. I, I never really kind of wanted to direct people in a particular direction. You know, this is the way that you should see God, or this is the way that you should worship God. I was just telling the story of the experience of being in this space, right? At least that's the way I always saw it. And then now, you know, to what I call career 2.0, I think after coming out, I do way more ministering now, like leading oh, people yeah. to a safe space, you know, like for people who want to, to truly walk away from their faith communities for a little while for their own safety, for their, you know, to be able to discover their own voice, to be able to be one of those people who gives them permission to go, you know, it's okay, you're not obligated to be there on Sunday morning and you're not obligated to be in an evangelical church. You're not obligated to do anything except for be alive and to, you know, and I hope that you will hear us and everybody else who's championing for you to know your own worth and your own dignity. If, yeah. if, and when a faith community is something that you want to consider again, here are some, you know, here are some people who you might find encouraging, you know, all of those kinds of processes to end, to be able to say, you know what, step right into your church and be you. And, you know, don't exchange your faith that you want to hold for, you know, you, you don't have to let that go because you love somebody of your same gender or because you're non-binary, you know, you're non-binary conforming because of all of these other ancillary things that we get all hung up about. Don't let that stop your pursuit of God. To be able to give permission yeah. on all of those kinds of things, you know, in a world where I appreciated that we came from a culture, at least in my lifetime, that very few people publicly and openly talk that way. And I think in particular from Christian music avenues where your ability to proceed professionally and to still have a job would be threatened if you took on language like that. Well, I didn't have to worry about that anymore. There was no guarantee of my professional future. And the passion just took over to be kind and to be to to be loving and all the things that I'd ever hoped that my art would actually create in terms of its fruitfulness and its generosity to other people was now an opportunity for me to do that. So um, I, I'm really grateful. I, I think there are a lot of churches who called and that I was very cold and rude to. And I think they were very understanding and, under, you know, were supportive still, I think, to this day of of understanding the kind of trauma that that creates in an individual and how much patience it takes to be able to just say, Hey, the door's open when you're ready to be here. And we will, you know, we will keep the lights on for you when, when, and if you're ready and it's okay, if you're not like, we wish you a safe travel and journey. So, you know, I, I was, I was really fortunate to know that, you know, even though you and like for you and I, you know, for your church and my, for me to have never connected, I think just the, the mere, you know, the willingness to be able to make those kinds of phone calls for every, you know, I think they're probably for every, you know, one that I got, there were probably 20 or 30 churches that were, you know, I'd like to think there were 20 or 30 churches debating what, what they would do um, in terms to showing that hospitality in their community and whether that trickled down to me or somebody else, you know, obviously in their local community, I think that speaks volumes. And it was, it was good to see representations of like that, uh, representations like that because as I proceeded through that kind of wall and through that you know that wall of fire to go through that knowing on the other side there were people like genuinely calling and good and honoring their word and that and their compassion and that was a really good thing to see I, I'm not sure I'd still be here today and I'd still be playing if it weren't for that potential of people who actually knew what love was in the ways that I understood love um, to be able to kind of manifest and show publicly. Because in the long run, it meant that I wasn't doing that alone. There were a lot of us um, out here that had actually are aspiring to be that in our daily lives. Well, I'll tell you, um, I know that it spurred a very deep conversation within our church um, because this was at the beginning when people were really like more like mainstream Christians and people that were known we're coming out either coming out, coming out, or, you know, coming out in support of mm -hmm. uh, the LGBTQ community. This was sort of like at the start of that when it was really affecting the church. So we, I know we sort of uh, took, took a look at ourselves to see what we were going to be about and, you know, um, look at our mission and our, I mean, it got deep. Uh, some of these conversations got deep all because of, um, you know, the news about you. So, I mean, there, and I'm sure we're not alone. I'm sure there were other churches out there too in a, in a similar situation. 
I get a little uneasy even talking about this this issue because honestly, it's none of my business. And I feel like um, right now, because we're at the stage in, in culture and the, the relationship between the church and culture, it's unfortunate that we still have to be having these conversations. And I'm hopeful that soon we'll get to a place where I, I don't have to ask this question to someone that I'm interviewing, you know? Um, <laughs> why do you think the church is so obsessed with like sex stuff? <laughs> oh my goodness. So many reasons uh, I can think of like academically, <laughs> things that we talk about in divinity school, you know? I mean, there's certainly like, you know, we can we can trace some of the the ways that we've accidentally gotten to this point, where you know the acts. I don't think, like I think of uh, Augustine and Augustine's you know loathing of self, <laughs> and the idea you know so much of Augustine trying to put away and deny himself his his own self, and I think that those links to pleasure and the suspicion of our own desires, right? Like that yeah. we're supposed to kind of uh, put away our desires because they're all utterly, you know, basically criminal and to desire God's. And I think that rhetoric is not necessarily on the whole bad, but when you start kind of building a framework of our theology, and I, I want to, I don't know, there are quite a few theologians, male, by the way, right. who did this kind of action, like, this, you know, this idea that we as, as humans and our, our fallibility and our humanity are, I guess, in some way, you know, we're not immortal. We're not gods. We know this and we understand this. And, and but this minimization of us and this idea that we are essentially corrupt from the beginning has been a really damaging thing. Yeah, what what really part does sex play in this? Well, it's one of the great pressure points of shame you know yeah. on top of that the ways that we've looked at uh marital relationships the covenants of that have been you know largely complicated with 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 actually women as property let's be honest and yeah. i realize that's a controversial thing to say but we actually really have to be honest i mean and the role that this would play in women's security and survival were dependent on their relationship with men and how that's complicated anything to you know if if you want to be super nerdy about it like the separation between womanist theology which is black women you know black black women talking about feminism in the context of, of race because women in feminism, white women in feminism understood that they had more power under the shield of patriarchy. So right. I could, you know, this is nerdy, nerdy stuff, but at the end of the day, you know, there is something incredibly intimate about what happens with our bodies, what we do with our bodies and how, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others, we are not ultimately alone. Like no matter how we see ourselves at some point in time, we're going to come in contact with another human being. And I think it is very important. And I think we understand that to some degree. So it becomes, you know, incredibly important when we talk about the most intimate forms of contact. What can we do to be ethical? What can we do to be moral? What are the choices that we make? We can't just serve ourselves and grab and go and get everything that we want. It will affect somebody else. And so in, in those things that we do, how do we do that well? And I think our faith communities are one where we really value that question because we understand at least somewhere in there, we have to take on board what does it mean to care for a life that is created? What does it mean to care for a life in our own life, in our own lifetime, the way that God might care or see for this life. And, you know, sex is one of the most intimate ways to do that. But it's also one of the ways of which we in the same way, we were like, how do we tell people what to do with their bodies? Because what they what you know, what that that these are the lines of power that we yeah. be able, you know, we're able to then define what authority is and who has it. And so the sure. question that I always have at the end of it is like, if somebody's telling you what to do and, and telling you how to do it, trace the lines of power, who benefits from this information and who benefits from this action. And, 
that's it's been part of the contest I think that we see around LGBTQ issues. It's part of we we see it at play in so many other things. As particularly for as a woman, I would say I see that in anywhere from abortion rights to marriage to you know true love waits campaigns. It's veiled in all of this, and it's really about maintaining these power these power dynamics, maintaining these borders of authority and. I know this is really, you know, I, I am aware that whenever I get into conversations like this, all of the contests that I've had throughout my entire life of saying, woman, you are wrong. You are just resisting, you know, the direction of a good godly man. <laughs> you know, you are, you are, yeah, well, you know, I am supposed to be submissive to these other things. And I, I think, and this is something I've definitely appreciated from my LGBTQ community. I, th I think this idea that the argument, right, that when you're, you're quote unquote, rebelling against or pushing against or contesting or questioning or um, in any way problematizing the status quo, that you are inherently being heretical, rebellious, you know, that these are all negative responses to something. And what we have missed are the groaning of a people <laughs> underneath of this. We have missed this in women saying, listen, I have lost myself to these yeah. other institutions, these expectations are too much and they're burdensome and they're ruining my, my daily life. And I, I, these are not fruitful things. These are not showing me what, this is not good news. <laughs> this yeah. is not liberation. How do I then make sense of this theology? And I, I think for the people that I, I've come to truly respect and admire is not just being a re rebel or just saying that these things are wrong, but to say, how have these things been fruitful or beneficial to any of us? And, you know, we fast forward to, you know, say, you know, talk about the True Love Waits campaign. That's not an LGBTQ thing, right? But it's right. it's in there. And we're talking now to generations of people who go, wow, like I'm getting divorced and I did everything right. I waited till I got married and now I don't know how to be intimate with my partner. I don't know how to share. I don't know how to respect my wife. I don't know how to respect my husband. I feel lost. I don't know who I am. You know, all of these other things that kind of we think that they don't have anything to do with us until the moment that they, they're not serving us in the way that we were told. And we're we're straight people, gay people, non-binary people, white people, black people, brown people. You know, we're people of all shapes and sizes from different communities saying these theologies have actually been. While, you know, let's be positive and while well-meaning, we've been a little bit too hyper focused focused on legislating what a Christian looks like rather than preparing people mm -hmm. to to find a pathway to God. And and I, I think those distinctions are really important. Yeah, they really are. And and the distinction between, you know, just because the church judges you doesn't mean that God is. Um, the two things are separate. And I think that's an important distinction that we should be making. Yeah, you know, I'm not a I'm not a huge fearer of God's judgment. I, I I realize that statement might sound, you know, really shocking to some people, but um, uh, this I, there's something that I I kind of came across in my years away at, from the you know from CCM, and I was living out of the country, and I I just remember sitting down and I to another Christian friend of mine, I, I turned to him one day and I I said, you know, I think I know what it means to fear God now, and. In that statement, when when I said that, I was at a point where I was kind of like, I saw myself for who I was, and I understood something about how important it was for me to be able to to hold my head up and stand in front of anybody, right, and be who I was and say, this is this is who I am. This is the person that you see before you today is the person I'm willing to be accountable for. Like all the things that I do, all the things that I say, all the things that you see, I'm willing to be accountable for that. And that was terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying to go, yeah, I'm gay. Like, because I know that people aren't going to like that. And that's just what that is. And so that's that's a terrifying experience. And and when I said to him, I'm afraid, you know, I know what it's like to fear God. In that moment, I was like, okay, this is a person that I am. And this is a person that I have to be accountable for. And then I kind of like, in terms of like a relationship with God, I just kind of like, well, this is what it is. So deal with it. <laughs> you know, like it is insane kind of prospect for the way that I was raised within Christianity. I was discipled yeah. within Christianity to turn to God and go, this is what you get. 
God. Like, yeah, I don't know what to me, tell you. This is, this is what you get. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. On my best day, all I can say is <laughs> this is the person that is standing before you. And this is what will you do? Have mercy on me is all I can say. And then you wait. You wait for the blow. And mm. I was like, man, I'm not going to wait around for you to bludgeon me because this is, you know, and I didn't. It was kind of that weird kind of moment. Like I was, what I realized is that I was, I I don't know that I was afraid of God, like being smited by God in some way. What I was actually genuinely afraid of is that God would look at me and say, nope, not interested. That's the terrifying part. If you think about love, right? You think about any earthly relationship you've ever had where you say, I kind of know that I'm hard to live with, <laughs> you know, all the things. <laughs> if you've ever been married, right, for even five minutes, you know that somebody is like ignoring or choosing to walk through some of your BS. I, you I have could not to. be married to myself. Right. I couldn't. Like, I look at myself and I'm like, even just yesterday, I said to my wife, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you got through yesterday with me. Thank you so much. That was generous and kind and unnecessary. And you did it. And I am so grateful. You know, think about those moments in your life where somebody has, you know, how terrifying it is when you basically look up and you say, will you love me? Look at this hot mess. And I'm still at, you You know, you can't hide it and they can see all of it. And you kind of go, will you love me? And that terrifying moment where they, you know, somebody says yes or no. I mean, even in an earthly context. Now imagine that deified. Imagine that as an ultimate with a capital U, you know, an ultimate no. That's what's terrifying. That's to me is is the kind of judgment. That's like well, I think we think about judgment and punishment way too much. I think we what we really don't understand is what it means to be existentially denied. Um, that sounds like a big way to say that, but for me to say no, I don't value you. I don't love you. I'm walking away. I don't care what happens to you next. It's abandonment. Is it's it's a horrific terrifying thing and that to me was like i that's what made me think that's that was the context of which i feared god i feared that god would see me the way that i saw me and i'm like i know that god probably sees me even better than i see me and i don't i see the reason for god to turn away from me and that's just not the way that it worked and it, it took a few more years for that to settle in but i was like oh man that's that's really something and uh, I wasn't even thinking about Christianity at that time. I was well aware that in that move, I was, I don't know. It was like I threw off all of these expectations that I was ever going to be robed and looking presentable as a Christian. Like instead I was actually feeling like disrobed <laughs> and all of the things that I thought may or may not, you know, all the solutions of which would make me presentable to God that I'd been trained. Right. we we don't drink. We don't cuss. We don't have sex before marriage. We don't do this. These are the, th you know, these are the, what Christians act like. And this is what we talk about. And these are the quiet times you will have. And this is a Bible passages that you can quote and all these other affects, these, these things that we can dress ourselves up with and adorn with and somehow make us acceptable in the temple. And what, what I think that I, I, I realized at the day is you don't go into the temple with all of those things on, you go into the temple with all of those things off and what's underneath of that is a, a really challenging thing to have to confront. So I don't even know why I started this conversation, but you know, this point of it, but I think there is a point in that where I think we're, we're sometimes so concerned on the outside of Christianity, what we present that we don't realize that, that at the end of the day, what God is trying to, to do is for, you know, I, I, I can't speak for what God is trying to do, but I think what I am trying to do in my relationship with God is to be comfortable in God's sight and to be comfortable with what i know is about me and not ex you know not necessarily excusing anything but being able to say listen i i'm i'm working really hard in this endeavor and i want to understand what it is when we have a conversation with one another to not be in contest with that not necessarily you know see anything that i haven't figured out yet or i don't know or i'm bewildered by to be considered something that god would want to punish me for but have mercy on me and i think that's been one of the the, the major parts of the way that we talk about yeah, it's I, I yeah, it's just kind of one of these things. I think we take for granted sometimes when we talk about the judgment of God, or we talk about, mm -hmm. you know, what God expects of us. Uh, 
or, you know, the idea that, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like, well, what do we really mean by that? And even the contest, you know, we already discussed about what that has to our own dignity. But we're not necessarily just trying to rebel against those things, but we're really struggling under the weight of them to be able to be uh, presented before God without fear. Yeah. So that's, wow, that's really insightful. Um, it's, it's like, we're all on a journey here together and I'm always irritated when other people seem to want to speak for my life, uh, from God as though he doesn't speak to me, uh, for what I should do. Um, okay. So I have a sort of like a, I have one more sort of serious question then a couple fun ones. Um, all right. (laughs) So let's run, let's run to fun as fast as we can. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. All right. So, um, so it's sort of like, uh, I'm going to put you in a situation here. So you're, um, a guest speaker here at a, a conference full of evangelical pastors and leaders. And the question that you're wanting to address is, you have, you know, a, a small limited amount of time. So you want to pick the best, like, what what is it that you would wish that those pastors would understand about the LGBTQ community and that stuff? Like if you had just a couple of minutes and like, like, are they missing something? Are, is, is something not being communicated clearly to them? Like, what would you want to say to them? You know, that's, that's a huge question. Um, a lot of leverage. You 60 on seconds minutes. to answer it. No, yeah. I mean, I, I really actually think about, uh, the advice from Bishop Gene Robinson, who is, uh, the first openly gay Bishop in the, Ang- in the Episcopal church here in the United States. And one of the things he said is to, to all Christians who were perplexed by this, is that when you hear an LGBTQ person stand in front of you and tell you where they're at, believe them. Just believe them. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know any other thing else to say. I mean, it, to me, it's like, believe me when I tell you the experience that I'm having. Just listen is the subtext of that. Listen, it is your turn to listen now. Stop telling, stop guiding, you know, stop guarding, stop legislating, stop getting in the way just be quiet and listen for a while Mm -hmm. and i I, and if you can suspend the judgment try you know suspend any attempt that you have to have a solution to something or to fix or to mend sometimes you just need to listen that i would add to that then after the listening that bishop gene robinson has i think the next thing i would encourage somebody to do is 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 to cease and desist this idea that we are here to instruct someone how to live their lives, but rather invite leadership as hardcore invitation to walking with. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there is a big, and I I think this holds not just within, I, I think this is a mistake that, I think we feel in all a, a lot of areas of leadership inside of Christianity um, through a, a myriad of issues, but I think it particularly is has been particularly done a harm in the LGBTQ community because one, it hasn't listened, and second, it you know it's talked too much and not listened enough, and two, it's it's released the hands of people and sent out into the wilderness a lot of people who were simply looking for partners, mentors, uh, community. Um, We've, we've alienated people instead of drawing them in and, and we've, we've put ourselves in exile at a time because we've been told what to do rather than somebody helping us navigate our lives. So that's all to say is I think we're really, I think we're really on the verge of trying, needing to understand what it means to, that a leader is not a dictator and, and, and figuring out what it means to, to care for our faith and our tradition enough to be able to listen to the people who make up that faith and to embody it and inhabit it, inhabit it, be less concerned with about what the boundaries are, but be generous in our theology and be generous in our time and our compassion 
to be able to be and walk with someone as they're navigating this journey. Because at the end of the day, whether it's our change or someone else's change, no change happens unless we are not embodying and active and participating with the direction of where we want to go with our bodies and our person flat out. So it doesn't matter how much you tell somebody what they should do. You're just a tyrant. If you are demanding, you know, you're, you're, you're enslaving someone to something if it's not their will to go. And I think that's inherent to something that we know about God that we anticipate is, is true about our relationship with God, that God sees us and respects our will and has yeah. has a degree of patience and latitude to understand that we are learning in particular ways as we go. So what does that mean for our leadership? So that was a very much a longer answer, but I, I think that, yeah, listening and and um, allowing and, and being there with, um, yeah. and it's going to be a long, long, long time to, you will find in those positions how often you're yeah. really biting your tongue. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's yeah, crazy. And you're, and you're waiting point. patiently, right. For, yeah. for people to make mistakes, for people to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to need care, like to make a mistake where they need care and love and compassion when you, you know, shut up. Don't, you never get to say, I told you so out loud. <laughs> you know, that's, it's not a kind of generous thing, but it's an amazing when we knock, you know, when we do make those, we need those kinds of communities to be able to help us guide us along their way and to be alienated in our, in our challenges when those times are hard is, is even, I don't know, is, is, is not, it's not that, you know, for what, you know, what will you yeah. get to be right? <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't long, understand that. Yeah. Long are the days where, uh, we would, uh, where people like Jesus would, uh, walk alongside disciples and, teach by example and live life together and, and stuff like that. I just think that's a, I mean, you're the two things like going alongside other people and living life and listening. I can't think of two, any better responses than those two. I mean, listening has been a huge thing for me, uh, in understanding, uh, racism, for example, and, uh, just the, once I shut up and stopped talking, I was able <laughs> to learn so much more about the plight of African-Americans in this country. Um, you can hear I, the concerns be, of other people. Yeah. You, you can yeah. hear the concerns that well, you're listening to the concerns and what you discover is like, it is a concern of, of one's, you know, one's dignity. It's not a complaint about other yeah. people. It's usually a, a quest for survival. Um, I, I want to kind of maybe frame that in a scriptural context, dare I say, but, you know, I think mentorship oftentimes when I'm thinking about what role I want to play as a leader for whatever capacity or whenever I get that moment is, is to kind of constructively think and work out the question, you know, who are we that God is mindful of us? And I, I think that's the question that we're actually kind of laboring toward instead of, you know, instead of like you know trying to put on the garments of something to kind of really understand what is the the person beneath and mm-hmm. you know who are we when we stand in this relationship that these are the questions that we are actually trying to mentor well who are you eric who are you that god is mindful of you because that's uniquely the a question I mean, there's going to be some uniqueness in that answer because there's only one eric and yeah. the same way as there's only one me and those will have you know, some of those things on your list that you might, def- you know, when you build that essay, so to speak, uh, may have some context of your gender or, you know, your, who knows what's going to be on that list, gender, your kids, your family, wh- where you grew up, who knows, but you're going to write that and you're going to tell that story and you're going to see that in a way that only you can, because you embody it. And I think that's the challenge that we have of, because I think at the end of the day, I think we all to a degree understand that we are unique, that we're not going to be, you know, these can, we're not going to all look like cookie cutter people. We're not going to look all well, the same shouldn't. shape inside. Yeah. It, it's just this idea that God wants one end product. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it is a bewildering thing with the, the immensity of a God that we imagine might actually have the capacity to create this incredibly diverse and unique universe to the ends of, you know, blowing our imagination of what we could even imagine to think that at the end, that humanity is only only going to look like one thing is a shocking kind of thing to have to consider. 
Yeah, definitely incongruent. Okay, enough of the deep stuff. Um, so let's talk about Jennifer Knapp now and, uh, and moving forward. Um, so I have a, a couple fun, more fun questions. Uh, we only have a few minutes left here. Um, so I'm curious, like, uh, maybe maybe the first question should be, how how has your music evolved from when you started in the Christian music industry till now? Because I'll tell you, I, I saw you on a TED Talk um, that you did. I don't remember where. I don't know how many you've done. Maybe only one. But you also performed there. By the way, it was a beautiful song uh, that you sang. And uh, I would be curious to know if you're writing gay songs yet. But, you know, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, um, so I did notice that your sound changed a little bit. Um, so I'm just curious, like, or maybe that was just because of the audience. Like, it wasn't as, say, raw as i've i've heard you in the past so i'm just curious like how has your music evolved and what will jennifer knapp in the future look like yeah you know i feel like you know i'm i'm scratching 50 now uh the i you know the energy that i have at home when i'm writing like i am not compelled at all to write like some big rock and roll song that i have to spend you know three hours doing calisthenics just to do a three minute song i mean I, I think as i'm aging i am more comfortable with you know the idea of sitting in my rocking chair and just you know slowly contemplating things so i feel like i'm, I'm mellowing out a little bit and less compelled to be a rock and roll chick um and kind of i think i and i'm also getting a little bit more comfortable too with some of the things that i resisted as a young artist where i, I grew up in kansas so i have this weird thing where i didn't want anyone to think any way whatsoever that i was I didn't want anyone to accuse me of sounding country. And I, yeah. I, I, it was just some weird, young, egotistical, artistic thing that I had as a young kid. But I think now, like the singer songwriters that I respect, I, I just kind of don't care what they I, I feel like now I'm a lot more comfortable with letting the song be what it is. And I'm not I don't feel like I think particularly as being an independent artist these days, I don't feel like I have the con and I've been there, done that to a degree. I don't feel like I have the to create in a sense that makes a rate. You know, I don't feel the pressure of feeling like when I write the song that it has to be a radio hit that I'm, you know, worried about getting five radio hits on a record or something like that. I want them to be good songs mm -hmm. and I want those songs to stand on their own, but what they sound like and how they're perceived by the public, you know, is this Americana? Is this, folk is this rock i kind of don't care about that anymore and and I, I i think to a degree unless you're inside of like you know hardcore uh like economic pipe you know record industry pipelines and things like that i mean I, I think they are you do have to be concerned with how you market stuff but i think as an artist i'm really enjoying taking the boundaries away and the expectations away i think that was the, the thing that I, I got really excited about again in returning to writing, especially from the CCM world to, to this one. And it's a, a practice I maintain to this day when I sit down and write, I just write. And I say, you know, don't worry about what the end product is to this second. Don't worry about anything else. Just block it all outside and just listen. Just listen to, to what your heart is saying. Listen to who's speaking to you right now. You know, if I'm writing some, you know, from a perspective of somebody else. It's just, I'm trying to be a seer and I'm trying to, to see where that song is leading me and pull on it. And, you know, maybe it gets used or maybe it doesn't, but I want to be earnest to where that song wants to go these days. And I'm less concerned about what that means for, you know, I should be. And there will be moments where later on down the track with a song, I might be concerned with <laughs> what that does. But now I'm really enjoying that part of my artistry. I don't feel like there's any, I, I don't expect those songs to save me. I just expect to, to be honest, those songs and, and invite those songs to come to me in a way that I can take them to the people who need to hear them most. So the world needs another Jennifer Knapp album. Uh, is there any, uh, in the future where we can expect to hear some of these, uh, thought provoking ideas that you sit in your rocking chair and think about? Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're now you're speaking to the pressure part yet. Yeah, it's been a few <laughs> years since I've put a new record out. Uh, yeah, I need to get around to that. I haven't, life has just kind of been busy post COVID and everything to kind of get in a rhythm. Um, I'm like some people write all the time. I'm a feast or famine writer. I, I tend to like <laughs> hunker down for two or three months and then write a bunch of songs. And I just kind of haven't quite gotten into the rhythm of that. 
but yeah, I, I need to put one out. I'd like to put something out within the next year, but we'll see. Uh, I'm also, you know, kind of doing some, I'm actually speaking of theological ideas. I've been kind of trying, I, I take a big breath when I say this, I'm working on a book. I mean, the outline of, for these ideas have been there and an expectation is that I will finish it sometime before our, all of our deaths. Um, but I am working on these kinds of theological I'm enjoying kind of working on these theological ideas and kind of taking these conversations and putting them down into writing to, to be able to, to be able to share it and mold over. It's been taking a lot longer than I think. Um, and then I think somewhere in there, I'm anticipating at least being able to release an EP later on this year of some, uh, some obscure folk songs, which if that might sound really bizarre, um, but I did a little collaborative project with another artist by the name of Levi Lowry. So post COVID, one of the things that I was doing is just connecting and hanging out and playing with a lot of other artists, which as a solo artist, it's not something I get to do a lot. So mm -hmm. we came up with this little recording cause we hadn't, neither one of us had been in the studio for a while. And so we just said, well, we don't have anything that we want to do of ours. These are some songs that are intriguing to us. So we've got anywhere from like a Rich Mullen song on that thing to a 17th century song about the plague. So, uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of a wild thing but hopefully uh in the next uh few months you know people start being able to put some sounds in their ears cool all right last question for all the musicians out there what kind of guitar do you play um principally i either play uh for my acoustics i'm either playing a taylor 810 uh which is you can probably see it back there mm -hmm. it's, it's that guy right there or the okay. a ta or a Taylor five fourteen, which is a little grand auditorium, uh, and then electric. I pay play a Dangelico XL, so it's a nice little uh, hollow body that yeah. got a couple of a uh, humbucker. Well, I don't think they're hum I'm not sure they're humbuckers in there, but they look like humbuckers. That that guy right there, that's Louise. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> so I'm either playing like kind of a bit, you know, a big dreadnought acoustic or a, a smaller kind of a sm smaller acoustic, which yeah. Those are the three principal cool. ones that I play. Cool. Well, we have been talking to Jennifer Knapp. What an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Eric. I really appreciate the deep dives. Yeah, awesome. And uh, we will um, have links um, for Jennifer's website in the description. Please make sure that you like and share. Thanks again, Jennifer. My pleasure. Thank you.